This podcast is produced on the land of the Wujak Noongar people, and we want to pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the winter podcast episode series. <laughs> it, uh, we're, we're in the middle of weird Perth weather. It's very, very cold. It's not very nice. <laughs> yeah. Windy, wet, cold. Yeah. And uh, yeah, weird. Weird. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was just saying off air that I've got my gumboots well and truly out, mm, mm-hmm. out of the cupboard at the moment. So. Yeah, it was kind of sad. So so um, for all the listeners listening, I've just been in Amsterdam and it was beautiful weather. It was shorts and T-shirts, nice and sunny, and then I came back here and mm. had to get all my blankets out. I wasn't very <laughs> happy about it. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anyway, um, the podcast must go on. They must. And before we do, uh, we should probably apologise for not not getting one out uh, recently. Um, I think we've both been inundated with work and and other commitments, unfortunately. We have got excuses, if you want to call them that. So So if you want to know our excuses, then email us and we can send a long list. Uh, Well, the the short version is that, Courtney, you've just finished your PhD and it's all confirmed and passed and and you're going to be graduating soon. Yes. So massive congratulations. Woohoo, all done. (laughs) Yeah, and then I'm writing the final bits of mine so now. You're almost done. So that's been taking up quite a bit of time mm-hmm. and we've been juggling that with the podcast and other things. So yeah. 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 Anyway. Exactly. It will get more regular. We yes. promise. We but have got a list of guests We do. Up. We yeah. do. And we have an episode for you now. Yes. Which is very exciting. Most importantly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we have um, Dr. Erin Kelty on the podcast today who is an old colleague of mine. <laughs> Not in age. Glad you finished that a sentence. Long, a long-term colleague of mine, I should say. Not, she's definitely not old. Yeah. Uh, she's very young. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we shared an office for seven years mm-hmm. and we're still office buddies. And, yeah, Erin's been a, a constant source of support and inspiration to me um, in the time I've known her and um, it's a superstar. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's also got such an interesting pathway into how she, she's yeah. doing the things that she's doing now as well. That's um, it. Yeah, very, very different to yeah. many others that we've interviewed. So, yeah, that's yeah, right. Good and, story. And you'll hear that, like, there's a lot of uh, different aspects to Erin's interests and character mm-hmm. and, you know, what she's done over the years. Yeah. And a really interesting conversation. Definitely. Yeah. So we hope, everyone, that you enjoy. podcast has been, I think, about seven years in the making since we started working together. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah. our first room together seven years ago. Yeah. Just okay. youngins. Wow. Yeah, we should probably give you a proper introduction, <laughs> yeah. which is emerging leader, NHNMRC leader, <laughs> Dr. Erin Kelty. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. We have, we have spoken about it in the past, but just never got around to doing it. Yeah, and my absolute, like, fear of cameras and microphones has kind of, like, put a bit of a dampener on that as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully you're just seeing our faces and not the microphone mm. today. Even they're really big <laughs> microphones. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So, um, yeah, for the people listening that don't know you, which won't be too many, um, 
Did you want to give us a bit of a rundown as to your background, you know, how you got involved in research, that sort of thing? Sure. So I am a, a sort of early mid-career researcher at the School of Population and Global Health. Um, my little niche specialty area is um, drug safety, particularly um, drugs uh, like medications used in pregnancy and their, their safety. Um, but I do dabble a little bit in kind of um, loads of other areas. I've got a background in statistics, so that makes me incredibly popular around the school <laughs> and popular with like clinicians and, and other people working in health um, to help with their their p-values and their confidence intervals. Mm-hmm. Um, I had absolutely no desire to get into research or anything to do with humans because they kind of grossed me out a little bit. <laughs> um, so I initially studied animal science and thought, yeah, animals, cool, I can do that. And then kind of got to the end and was like, what the hell does an animal scientist do? Um, And was looking for a job and found something um, in pharmaceuticals, um, doing animal research there. We did animal research for a couple of years and then they kind of ran out of animals and... and, and kind of pressured me to go into human research. And I really, really did not want to do that. And I thought, oh, humans, they're really hard to keep track of and they run away and do silly things. <laughs> and they're, you know, you can't keep them in cages like you do with the, the mice. Yeah, um, mostly. But I eventually got involved and actually really liked it and enjoyed the data side and then kind of mm. went from there. What, uh, what sort of animal projects were you doing? Like, were you testing pharmaceuticals on animal models? Or? Yeah, yep. Okay. So we had, um, um, we were looking at a drug, which was a long-acting um, formulation of a drug that's already registered. Um, so the original, originally registered um, drug was like a daily formulation, but they're having lots and lots of um, problems with um, people taking it daily um, because this was a drug that was being used to treat um, heroin dependence Mm. and it's very, very hard for a heroin dependent person to take a medication every day, particularly a medication that takes all the fun out of heroin. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were looking at a long-acting treatment so it lasted about six months um, and we were looking at it in um, sheep and in rats. So we had these sheep and rats for about two years and were mm. um, doing doing research on them, so quite long projects. Yeah, so that's naltrexone you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm assuming you're talking about implants. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay. um, Dr George O'Neill, who's a bit of a Subiaco celebrity, um, he had been treating a, a pregnant woman because woman, he was an um, obs and gynae, um, and he had a pregnant heroin user come in and she was like, you need to help get my partner off heroin. I've stopped, but he won't. And so George was like, cool, I could do that. And um, taking it very literally, he um, imported naltrexone and then when he saw it wasn't working, um, he decided to develop his own formulation. And that's how he kind of came up with this this implant preparation, um, which is being used now in WA for about 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Was it uh, Fresh Start? Was that the clinic? Yeah. 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 Is it, do you know if it's still going? Yeah. 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 So Fresh Start's um, located in Subiaco, but they have um, quite a big rehab out kind of towards Northam. And okay. um, yeah, still going quite strong as far as I know. I think it's next to the Irish Club 
is from what kind of implant is it um, it's like in your arm or something or so it actually goes in your abdomen mm-hmm. and it is a fully biodegradable implant oh. so it's made of a biodegradable polymer um, so as the polymer breaks down, the natrexone is released and then it eventually kind of turns into nothing and, and completely dissolves in the skin, which mm. is really handy when you don't have to kind of take take the implant out. Mm. And if I've got my facts straight, you met, you've done your PhD using data from that clinic, is that yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, so looked at about um, 2,500 patients who've been treated by George at the clinic and looked at their health outcomes um, long term comparing it to methadone and buprenorphine to see if it was having equivalent um, outcomes in terms of safety. Um, We also looked at it in terms of um, pregnant women because what we were finding in the clinic was that people who were going on to naltrexone were having lots of babies and they were like becoming super fertile (laughs) which was a bit of a bit of a um, a minor concern um, particularly because they didn't know what the safety and what the impact of naltrexone could have on the baby mm. and is, is that where your interest in pre- uh, safety during pregnancy came from yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah interesting mm. yeah and um, what were your favorite animals to work with <laughs> <laughs> so I only ever worked with um, sheep and rats but yeah. I love the sheep they were really cool they're uh, they were very trainable and easy to work oh, yeah. with. It kind of ended up being like, um, although not like pets, but like lab pets where you can actually get along quite well with them. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, so it must have been interesting. I'm assuming you had contact with some of the patients in the clinic and, and that sort of stuff. Um, do you have any colourful characters that you can share with <laughs> <laughs> any stories? Yeah, yeah, um, 100%. Um, probably one of my favourite stories is um, we were doing a clinical trial at the time and we had um, recruited a bunch of patients and we were being really particular. We were like, we need the best patients, patients that will be easy to follow up, that they're not going to get into trouble, that they're going to attend all their appointments and we can get some really good safety information long-term. Um, um, we were going really strong, really well, um, until we got to the clinic one morning and found that one of the patients, one of our favourite patients who'd been enrolled in this clinical trial, because we thought he's going to be an absolute gem, <laughs> was on the front page of the Western Australia, having been convicted of um, uh, killing and torturing two people in a drug deal gone wrong and subsequently <laughs> ended up in prison. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. So, so your favourite person. Yeah, so excellent judge of character, yeah. obviously. Like, I really can, I really know what's going on. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they are very enter- entertaining people um, to work with in a, mm. in a research way. Yeah, okay. And then going back to animals, obviously rats and sheep is one thing, but you obviously have a passion for animals in other ways, right? Yeah, so I, a uh, long time... Uh, horse enthusiast <laughs> and, and horse rider um, and I've been able to use my research expertise um, in doing some things in equine um, veterinary clinical practice. Um, so it kind of started about 10 years ago um, when I had booked my horses in to get uh, a dental um, exam and a bit of a checkup because we do that every year to make sure their teeth are healthy and they're not causing any problems. Um, 
and my horse had a a dental condition which was pretty much um just cavities my horse had cavities which is <laughs> which is not good mm-hmm. and at that time uh, the dentist was like look your horse has cavities and um, we don't really know what to do with it we have a, i have a hunch that it's caused by um the diet and stuff um but we don't really know what to do and we don't know how to treat it and i was like well we could we could do some research and she was like <laughs> yeah we could do some research and I was like I'm a researcher and she's like that sounds awesome and so um yeah we spent the next 10 years working together and actually managed to identify what was causing the dental caries uh, we managed to work out um how it could be fixed so unlike humans you can completely cure cavities in horses um i wish we could have that Mm. (laughs) amazing um we learned how to do root canals in horses um we've developed um like a horse version of toothpaste that you put in their food um and we're kind of still still going strong at the moment um she completed her phd a couple of years ago and and still really interested and then we've been working with a couple of other vets to look at things like um, the horse equivalent of um, diabetes and whether or not you can use um, human diabetes medications to treat horse diabetes. Mm, That's fascinating. Mm. So what can you tell us about horse food and what you should go for and what you should stay away (laughs) from? Well, you'd be really surprised to know that high sugar diets in horses <laughs> cause, cause dental disease because... Um, but who's feeding their horses sugar, though? Well, the way that um, we've kind of um, evolved in West Australia is we've always grown hay that's made for dairy cows. So the sugar content of hay that's made for dairy cows is like 30%. Right. So it's okay. huge, Wow, massive. okay. And so we just... You know that's readily available hay yeah. so then we feed it to our horses and we know that a diet <laughs> that is 30 percent sugar is um going to cause some some teeth problems mm. and and a bunch of other problems diabetes I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's been a real shift in probably the last five years into feeding lower sugar haze and growing lower sugar haze <laughs> farmers have really come on board and been like Cool. All right. If that's what we need to do, that's that's what we'll do. I've, I've always, I've never really understood hay. I always thought it was just the leftover <laughs> bits of wheat or something. That's what I thought as yeah, well. And then they recycled it into hay. But is it actually like a grass that's grown and then dried yeah. and then? Yep. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, learning so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so straw would be just your with the um, tops cut off, but they yeah. actually grow specific crops and they have something called meadow hay, which is pretty much whatever's in the paddock and they will right. cut it up or okay. um, they will plant specialist crops for for horses. Specialist yeah. crops, eh? Yeah, okay. so stuff like oat and wheat and... Okay. It kind of sounds like... So, like, I have a cat, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, initially we started on just, like, generic food and now mm. we've had to go to, like, a veterinarian-approved dental care food. Mm. It feels like a very similar pathway and that's, like, yeah. veterinarian-approved dental hay. Yeah, so <laughs> we're in a weird phase where um, veterinary research is about 100 years behind human research. Mm-hmm. So there's so much that you can take from your learnings in in um, human research into mm-hmm. the veterinary community and make some really huge 
leaps forward, like discovering that sugar is bad for teeth. Yeah. You know, mm. in humans, we're like, like obviously. Yeah. <laughs> you learn that when you're a small kid and they're yeah. like, too many lollies. But, uh-uh. yeah. Um, but yeah, the horse communi- community was like, what? Oh, yeah, my right. God. Well, it makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We've just been feeding them lolly hay. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And then wondering why they have behavioral difficulties because yeah. they're like <laughs> small. Yeah children on on cordial yeah I'm, I'm wondering why that sort of hay the high sugar hay has such a bad effect on horses but not on cows if they're feeding it to cows that's what i was thinking <laughs> uh i don't know that cows have regular dental exams but mm. they quite possibly have awful bad, teeth bad and we just yeah. don't know about it yeah um yeah, I'm not sure. And do you think it's because humans maybe interact with horses on a kind of personal level more that they would mm. care more to think, oh, that horse is yeah. in distress? Or... Um, so horses are pretty stoic animals. They're not going to be like, oi, I'm in pain because that's when something will come along and eat them if they're like, you know, dragging a back leg. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, but what happens if you have a horse that's got a really sharp tooth that's poking into its gum or its tooth when you're riding along and it kind of catches on something it'll get upset and it will buck you clean off mm. or it'll you'll have performance problems or you have mm-hmm. other other issues um so making sure their mouth is really happy is a good thing and they did this study a few years back where they went into abattoirs and looked at um horses who'd been euthanized due to like behavioral problems and they were opening their mouths and finding like abscesses and mm. sharp points and mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it's yeah. Mm. I've got so many horse questions. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, oops. Yeah, nice. No, so, and just speaking of horses bucking people off, you know, during a performance <laughs> or, a, or a competition or whatever, um, you would have had a few accidents. I'm assuming it because you've been riding a long time. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm averaging about two a year, like two falls a year, um, okay. pretty reliably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, other people are much better riders, don't fall off quite as often. So, <laughs> And then given your interest in opioids as well, <laughs> I was wondering if there's any truth to the myth that if you give a horse heroin, it just keeps running. Yeah, we don't use don't use opioids in um, horse medicine. Okay, so it's not a myth. It's actually yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, like I haven't, obviously haven't tried it, but as far as I know, yeah. that's why they go for things more like ketamine. Wait, okay. Wait, what? It'll just keep on running. It just keeps running, just like it get. I don't know if it's fight or flight kind fight of thing. Flight, so it just so keeps going until it like dies. Yeah, or it doesn't. It doesn't go down well. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Because yeah, that's one of the street names for heroin is horse. Mm. Oh, of, of course. Reason, so. Oh, I never knew that. There you go. I had yeah. a friend who was selling some like like equine equipment on like a gum tree or something and she had labelled it horse gear on the Uh. ad and she was getting people ringing her up thinking she was selling heroin and amphetamine. She's like, I don't understand what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well, at least oh, we know if you're wanting to get some attention, what you need to put in your ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm here for all those good tips. Yeah, maximum clicks. <laughs> oh, dear. So, are, we, are, we, are we naming this episode Horse Gear then? Horse Gear. This is the Horse Gear podcast. We should have the meaning of hell. <laughs> the meaning of Horse Gear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, so um, just finally on the, the horse business. Yeah. <laughs> What uh, what sort of competing have you done over the years? What sort of events? 
Uh, mostly at the moment, I'm a, I'm a dressage rider because that's what happens when you get old and falling feels less fun. It's a little bit safer. But in the past, I've done a bit of show jumping and really low-level eventing. And then this crazy, crazy sport called tetrathlon, which is running, swimming, shooting, and then horse riding. Mm-hmm. Um, but that feels like a whole lot of work at the moment, and dressage is, is quite a lot easier and requires... Yeah. Much less training. So dressage is like the sort of gymnastics type thing where they do, they kind of walk around and you get them to do certain things. Maybe like fancy ring. walks and things. Yeah. 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 Fancy walks. Yeah. Like the weird horse ballet of riding. Yeah, horse ballet. Yeah. That's a great example. Yeah. A great yeah. term. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is a little less ballet and a bit more just walking. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping for more like more hip hop or <laughs> like some circles, yeah, yeah, yeah. lots of nice straight lines, a little bit of sideways. Yes, nice. Yeah, yeah okay. No, not really a spectator's sport at the level that I do it, unfortunately. And do you see yourself veering more towards animal-related, horse-related research in the future, or do you think that's sort of like a side project? Uh, I really, I really love it, mm-hmm. um, uh, but there is absolutely no funding involved, um, yeah. and everything that we've done has largely been unfunded and um, just for the love of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, which is tricky, where health and medical research, while not um, you know, requires more funding. At least there is there is some there at the moment. Yeah. Uh, so how do you do research without funding? Like, what's the process of that? Do you just have an idea and then go for it? Like, uh, pretty much. Yeah, right. Um, do you need ethics approval for oh, all yeah, stuff? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's quite complicated because you need ethics to work on the horses, mm-hmm. but then you need ethics to talk to the owners about working on their horses. So you actually have to get human ethics and then get animal ethics. And the human ethics and the animal ethics don't always Mm. cross over well. So some things that are like, oh, yeah, that's just how we do it in human ethics, animal ethics, like... (laughs) Right. Or like vice versa. Mm. Um, Yeah, so you just, you know, you just pair it right back and, and there's a lot of goodwill from mm-hmm. people who are involved and a lot of donated time and yeah and stuff but yeah it it okay. ends up with really cool projects that have really um impressive um translation mm. and mm-hmm. get really readily taken up by the community because they're just so excited yeah. that people are doing horse research okay mm. so it might be unfunded but at least it's more complicated <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it sounds like it's very appreciated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can actually see it happening in real time. Yeah, yeah. which is the insane. Which is used. rare for research, yeah, to be honest. Really yeah. I reckon it takes like 40 years for the average research finding to get translated into yeah. a change in policy. Maybe or we all need to move like into animal science. Yeah, maybe. Get uh, appreciated. Off, <laughs> there's, yeah. there's no room. Sorry, I won't be going near horses. It's fun. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they need it in puppies and kittens. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. No, it is. It is really good that you can see changes get implemented really quickly, and um, 
owners are really proactive. Um, we had a medication that's been shown to really help a kind of like horse version of um, diabetes. Um, and people have just been like so excited about it and, and it's been taken up mm. really quickly. And yeah, great to see it because it really changes horses mm-hmm. quite quickly from being very old and decrepit to being healthy and out there competing mm. within, wow. within months. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really improving longevity. Yeah. If only we had something like that for humans. Yeah. 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 So anyway, speaking of humans, that's where we started. So so you've done quite a bit of research on medication safety during pregnancy. What sort of medications and conditions? Um, I really like the strong medications, Um, not personally, but just in in research. Um, My interest in them has come from a little bit of that drug and alcohol background, but also because a lot of these medications come with the added complication that if you stop using them during pregnancy, um, the mother goes through withdrawal and that can also be translated into the fetus. So the fetus goes through like an intra-utero withdrawal syndrome, which can um, cause preterm birth or or, um, miscarriage and that kind of thing. So it's makes it a little bit harder to just like stop taking the medication because you think it's going to cause problems because there's a whole other side to that and it can be really really tricky to withdraw from from these medications um so yeah things like um oxycodone uh, dexamphetamines um sort of these schedule eight medications oxycodone's typically used for pain management right yeah yeah it's a strong opioid yeah and so is that somebody who's on, because it's supposed to not be prescribed for long-term use, if I understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there are people, obviously, who seem to be yeah. taking it for long-term. Yeah, um, chronic pain is, is a bitch and mm-hmm. there's not, you know, when you don't have something to treat it better and doctors are, you know, in a bit of a tricky place where patients are requesting it, really wanting it, um, but because there's nothing else that works. And then when you stop, you've got, of course, the withdrawal symptoms and your pain comes back. So it's a really tricky mm-hmm. situation to be in. Because I've seen this the series Dope Sick. I'm not sure if you've mm. watched it on Disney, which is all about... Now, is that oxycodone or oxycontin or are they the same thing? Yeah, same thing. Same thing. So the company that developed that basically used some fairly questionable marketing tactics <laughs> to, to, one, get people to use it and, mm-hmm. two, to get them to keep using more and more. Yeah. Um, coming up with terms like breakthrough pain and all this sort of stuff. So the, yeah. the same dose wasn't working, so double the dose and all this sort of stuff. So is that sort of what happens with people, even people who are pregnant? That Does their dose keep going up? And- um, so the crazy thing with pregnancy is you get quite a bit bigger as well. Um, so as your kind of volume increases and your you change in your body composition, um, there's a lot more room for you know, um, medications often become less effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so women might, for example, need more. Um, yeah. Whether they're given more um, is is kind of up to the treating clinician. But, yeah, the longer you use something, the, the less effective it tends to be. Yeah. But then you've got the problem with not using it is miserable as well. Yeah. So do we know whether continuing, like, oxycodone or experiencing withdrawal is better for the baby do we know which one kind of benefits 
long term. No, but we're doing something. We've just done something similar with um, amphetamines. Yeah. Uh, sorry, dexamphetamines um, for ADHD mm-hmm. um, treatment. Um, looking at you know if you become pregnant and you're someone who has ADHD and mm-hmm. you're using dexamphetamines, is it better for you and the baby to continue using through pregnancy, or should you stop? You know. Is having control of your ADHD symptoms or your even your pain for the um, for the case mm. of oxycodone? Um, is that better to help you be a better mum? So then you can like, you know, attend all your um, appointments and eat healthily and exercise and blah blah blah. Or should you come off and be in that pain or with ADHD have a more disorganised life where you're not kind of keeping track of things mm. and be on top of things? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what impact does that actual withdrawal found? Um, and for the ADHD research, we were finding that um, women who were withdrawing from medication were actually more likely to have threatened um, abortions. And so they were almost miscarrying when they were going through that um, withdrawal phase, which is a bit of a worry. When you say threatened abortions, you mean they were threatening to abort the baby? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, no, not that they weren't. Their body right. was. Oh, their body, sorry. Yeah, they okay, were. Yeah. They weren't running around saying, I'm going to abort it. I was going to say that's quite a severe reaction to <laughs> yeah, yeah, holding yeah. medication. But their, yeah. their body wasn't... Um, their body was kind of being like, hey, well, hold up, I can't do everything. Yeah, okay. can't do it all. Um, so, yeah. yeah but, okay. So yeah. it sounds like um, your work is like looking at how this can be done in the safest way possible, the least harmful yeah. way. Yeah, and yeah. just with people's understanding of what the risks and benefits are because mm-hmm. at the moment for about 40% of medications that are registered in Australia, the advice for using during pregnancy is actually we really don't know. Um, we've done some animal studies um, and we can tell you in a rat at 10 times the dose Mm-hmm. They might have some problems in pregnancy, but we've got no idea what that means to you as a person coming into a cl- clinic saying, yeah. hey, what the hell do I do? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so why why do you think there's not a lot of research on drugs in pregnant women when um, we know that it's an issue? <laughs> yeah, so it kind of only erased... Um, was identified as an issue in the late 50s with like flamidamide where they were, mm, yeah. prior to that they were like oh the placenta is amazing it protects <laughs> you and your baby nothing will get through and then they were like oh hold up wait a minute um, actually taking medications can really affect your baby um, and so they made some really big policy big policy changes to be like okay like if you're going to get a med- medication registered you need to do some research to make sure that it's safe to use in pregnancy mm-hmm. but they were like but we don't want to give pregnant women medications because what if it causes harm <laughs> to their baby so yeah. it's created this big cycle of not yeah. being able to do anything it's, a, it's an ethics issue right yeah essentially 100 yeah. an ethics issue and it's understandable mm. that mm. you know you don't want to get together a whole group of women and be like hey um we know you're pregnant and we're really excited for you here's this drug that could be fine or it could um you know kill your baby mm. or cause a congenital abnormality or blah 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 mm. um so they are just their approach has been like uh we don't know um for this medication um but if you decide that the risks of taking the uh, medication are outweighed by the potential benefits you know you go ahead but you know that's that's on you to decide or mm. on your clinician mm. to decide but at the same time you don't know what the risks or the benefits are so you kind of like Ugh. um so in terms of clinical trials they 
pregnant women tend to be largely excluded mm-hmm. and for a long time they were being seen as being vulnerable populations and so yeah. we shouldn't do research on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then kind of in like the last 10, 15 years, um, pharmacoepidemiology has come along and said, hey, we've got this, we can sort this out. Mm-hmm. And they've been using really large data sets of routinely collected data, linking them together, and they've been been able to identify women in a population who have been dispensed that medication during pregnancy and have chosen to take it, and they've been able to look at the outcomes Mm. um, in those women. So retrospectively means there's no additional ethical concern about about looking at them. Um, You can do some really cool things where you can look at um, how the baby was doing at birth, how it was doing like five, ten years later, um, what was its educational outcomes, mm-hmm. um, did it have asthma, did it get cancer, you know, you can follow these things up long term. Mm. It's one of the other problems with research into um, medication safety and pregnancy is the potential for different avenues of things to go wrong are like infinite. So you could be like, you know, what if it affects, um, in 30 years time, what if they all get cancer or like what if they um, are all slightly more likely to get ADHD or like, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. infinite about how you think of what, what is a safe medication mm. and what, what does that mean? So does this mean that pharmaceutical companies, when they're coming up with a new medication, basically have to develop it with a caveat that it can't be tested in pregnant women and so we don't know if it's safe, but it can be approved for all other people, but uh, we don't know. And until pregnant women decide to take it we're not going to know pretty much so the only kind of guidelines like in Australia and in America are you need to do um, animal testing in a rodent and a non-rodent model and they typically do them at like a a human equivalent dose so like a one-to-one and then maybe like five or ten times dose Mm. but when you look at the outcomes in these animals they're not going to be like oh we followed it for 10 years and this rat got asthma and you know they look at things very close you know what was the birth weight of the babies you know did they um the right number of limbs and all that (laughs) yeah Yeah. did they lose any of the babies or yeah um and it's you know when you're looking at a mouse that had like seven babies compared to another mouse that had five babies and you're like, oh, so maybe there's fewer babies in, associated with this drug, but how does that relate to a human that mm. has one baby? Like, <laughs> yeah, okay. One compared to zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it provides kind of like a bit of an indication of like, yeah, that drug is going to suck in pregnancy. Like there's probably going to be some issues. But mm. most of the time it's pretty grey. You're like... Uh, I mean, if you give them enough, it's probably going to mess up the pregnancy, but no, we don't, yeah. Yeah. Not sure. Is that sort of a conundrum for the doctors um, who are prescribing women who become pregnant, you know, opioids, for example, yeah. and they've been on them for a while and, yeah. you know, they now have to face the fact that the, a withdrawal could cause problems or obviously continuing the medication could cause problems associated with it and maybe there's already problems like there's a huge amount of maternal guilt particularly with like mental health conditions like um, women who conceive on um, like antidepressants or anxiety medication or 
Mm. Um, and they kind of told, you know, if you love your baby, you'll suck it up and you'll stop the medication and you'll just live with your anxiety or your illness or whatever. And yeah. sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even oh if we God. don't tell them that, that's what the mum is thinking. She's yeah. like, I'm an awful mum. I can't control my own depression and I'm hurting my baby by taking this medication. I'm a bad mum. I haven't even had the baby. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just a really shit situation to, mm. to be in. So how, have you spoken to many doctors who find themselves in that position where they've got to kind of decide, you know, what's best or advise their patient what's best? Yeah, probably not enough. Okay. Um, uh, um, because it's done in quite a, a varied situation, like it's done a GP or an OBS, yeah. OBS and gynae, like um, where that conversation or, is, yeah. is done. Um, we do have a couple of... Um, con consulting people that we work with yep. um, in who specialise in OBS and gynae who we chat to about things like, you know, what outcome is important for people who are taking this medication or what what would you like to see done in this aspect or what is a good indicator of maternal health in this context? Mm. Um, and we're also starting to do the same with um, consumers who've got a, a community in, and consumer involvement group um, that we're looking at um, ADHD medications in pregnancy. So talking to a group of about 30 women who have ADHD, who um, have been pregnant, are pregnant, or are thinking about getting pregnant some sometime and how their medication fits in with this and what what their concerns are, what research they'd like done, what, you know, what's important to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what... Uh, have you got any findings from them yet or any sort no. of feedback? No, um, so we're really lucky to get some funding to do it and we're hoping um, that the event will be run in August. Okay. So, yeah, looking forward to it, to yeah. getting some outside feedback. <laughs> it's very easy to sit in a room with a computer mm. for 10 years and pump out papers without actually seeing anyone ever. <laughs> Well, it sounds like your research career started the opposite way, where it was in your face, like you were seeing people come into the clinic and and that sort of thing at Fresh Start, and then you sort of gravitated to the big data side of things. Yeah, yeah, um, and there's definitely you could go either way. Um, for me, like I I liked working with people, but I like working with data a lot lot better mm -hmm. um the clinical research always was quite chaotic especially working with um people with drug and alcohol issues in terms of like chasing them up and them getting into trouble and and not turning up for appointments and um made things a lot more complicated mm -hmm. whereas kind of this uh pharmacoepidemiology side you can do a lot with um, data that's already available and you can make some quite big advances for a lot less money in terms of clinical trials and um, mm -hmm. without that without that kind of risk um, of, you know, doing clinical trials where, yeah. you know, if things go wrong, it can affect someone's health or their, their life. Yeah. Um, mm. 
seems to be like a bit low, a bit less stress as well to look at things that have already happened <laughs> and look back on them rather yeah, than people have already seeing, made those choices. Yeah, yeah. yeah, rather than seeing participants do stuff kind of as you're following them, you know, and yeah, you know, seeing people die and all that sort of mm. thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 100%. It, um, it makes life a lot easier and it's much easier to go home at the end of the day and be like, <laughs> today wasn't a great day, but I'm just going to close my computer and we're done. Whereas, yeah. you know, working in clinical research, we, you know, we had people um, have overdoses and die or get sent to prison or um, mm. do silly make just make bad choices pretty much and you Mm. you just have to be like that's that's okay and we'll do the best with what we've got (laughs) yeah so um what data sets do you use for your research now uh pretty much anything i can get my hands on um (laughs) so we use um like within a wa context Mm -hmm. we use um statewide hospital data ed death um, WA has a really good perinatal data collection, mm. which is called the Midwife's um, Notification Scheme, which has really in-depth um, information about babies when they're born and, and about their mother. Um, cancer data sets, um, St. John Ambulance, um, yeah, a huge, yeah, huge range, whatever can be kind of linked in because um, we have really good linkage services in, mm-hmm. in Western Australia. We can also do stuff with um, national data sets mm-hmm. that are held by the AIHW and other states kind of have their own linkage systems as well. Yeah. So one of the more controversial ones over the years has been the pharmaceutical benefits scheme data. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was once upon a time a sample was released publicly some people decided to try and re-identify individuals and manage to some computer scientists over in Melbourne. So then very quickly got rescinded. But yeah. you, you actually access a version of the 10% sample now, yeah. don't you? Yeah, so um, it's 10% of uh, medications dispensed in Australia under the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. So it's based on, like, um, the last digit of your Medicare number. Everyone who has a certain number gets pulled out and goes into this 10% sample which is really, really handy in terms of looking at like trends in medication use or like co-prescribing of certain medications or um, tracking how things are going in different states or by ages. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite slimmed down though in terms of like the demographics. You don't get a huge amount of information on the patients in your data set. You kind of get the year they were born, what state mm-hmm. and gender and that that's kind of about it mm. um but yeah we've had access to it here at uwa for about six months and it's yeah so far so good mm. haven't been able to identify anyone oh my god <laughs> i just i can't tell you how little i care about if someone got a medication for something on some yeah. day um well, yeah, i was gonna say what sort of information do you get about the people that are in the data set in terms of their demographics and that sort of thing uh, so for the PBS, very little. We get a lot more from, say, something like the hospital um, morbidity data collection where you will know when someone went to hospital or mm. um, and then kind of diagnostic codes or procedural codes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there tend to be really, really big data sets, like millions and millions and millions of records whereby you do have individual patients in there, but 
you know, the kind of in a sea of millions and millions mm. of other patients. Mm. And the only way you'd be able to like identify someone is if you if you have like a family or friend member that's told you a whole bunch yeah, of stuff and then yeah. you go and actively look for them in yeah. there. Um, yeah. So you have to have that secondary information as well. Yeah. I don't know, like pretty much as a researcher, like I just don't have time to busy body <laughs> like in a data set to find out. Like I wonder what their friend. 25th ICD oh. code was in this one hospitalization. Oh my God, I didn't know they had syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> but largely you're not extracting new information and then yeah. you know people can't yeah you're not looking at individuals in your research you're looking at cohorts and how mm. people are doing as a group rather than how an individual went on a certain medication and how they found it yeah the population level stuff yeah and yeah because that is the risk i mean even doing you know cohort research where you are going and recruiting people face to face you run the risk of meeting someone that was in the study. And I have, you know, gone on to meet people who were involved in studies that I've done later in, later on. Yeah. And they've said, oh, yeah, I was in that study and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it can be a bit awkward because you, yeah. you potentially have their, their, you know, sensitive data, you know, you've yeah. got mm. their health records and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the population level de-identified stuff is probably a bit more comfortable to mm. deal with. Yeah, I'm finding a similar thing working in the ED. It's okay. like... Every so often there's someone that gets enrolled. I'm like, oh, mm. I know that person. Mm. I should not be doing their data entry. <laughs> Get someone else to do it. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's a good approach. Yeah, so because there's yeah. a few of us that can do it. So if there's someone I know or someone they know, yeah, one of us, like someone else will do the data entry for it. Yeah, mm. we had a similar protocol when we were recruiting people in the prison that if someone on the list was someone that we personally knew, then either they would be excluded from the study or mm. a colleague would have to talk to them rather than us because just by being in prison that's a sensitive yeah, topic yeah that's you know? really yeah. tricky so yeah recently you've been awarded in con- conjunction with a few others of quite a big grant yeah, like from the UK, which you... I'm just allowed to talk about as of like 20 minutes ago. Oh, you are? Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay, Super that's good. Exciting. I didn't realise it was embargoed until then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. But I've got a big mouth and I probably told you weeks ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Except you... that you didn't. You only <laughs> told Craig 20 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. So really lucky um, to find out that we've been awarded um, a multi-million dollar Welcome Trust grant. Um, so the grant is to look at how um, heat waves and the increasing prevalence of heat waves um, is affecting uh, maternal and neonatal health. Mm-hmm. Um, so pregnant women in particular are really susceptible to heat stress and that heat stress can actually have a really negative impact on the baby um, such that in the right points at the right timing can cause things like congenital abnormalities or pregnancy loss or will be quite catastrophic Mm. um so we're looking at it's a three-part project but the part that i'm kind of um helping lead is looking at um all babies who are born in in australia over about a 20-year period and how um how the neonatal outcomes may have been affected by exposure to to heat waves so how do you how do you do that 
Watch out of sets are out there for, for heat waves. Yeah. Um, so, um, so we're going to use um, an AOHW um, data set that has every baby born in Australia during a 20-year period and kind of like their general kind of outcomes, like their birth weight and how long they were and how many weeks gestation. And then that has been geocoded. So it has something like a postcode or um, a local government area or some kind of, mm. this is where that um, yep. mother lived at the time. And then we have gone to the Bureau of Meteorology and got every um, single temperature taken twice, uh, every maximum and minimum temperature for every single day for the last 20 years from every single place in Australia. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to map those two to each other mm-hmm. so that we can identify heat waves <laughs> in each kind of area and map it onto babies. Okay. okay. And so and I'm assuming you'll then go back and um, work out some sort of timeline for each pregnancy. Yeah. And yeah. so it's say, you know, between in the first trimester, second trimester, for example, yeah. you know, exposure to a heat wave has had this impact. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, um, in Western Australia, we're going to look at it um, as, a, as a bit of a subset, looking at congenital abnormalities. So um, working out if exposure has during different trimesters and different types of heat wave exposure because you can kind of have like heat waves and then you have like really bad heat waves mm-hmm. and then um, you can look at other things like humidity and... Mm. Um, pollution and see how they kind of interact Mm. so would this be like the average temperature of the day over the pregnancy no so heat waves are categorized um by it's not uh there's a few different ways to do it um but it's like uh three days Mm -hmm. where the average maximum isn't it is it the maximum temperature? No, it's the average. Oh god, I'm going to get this wrong. <laughs> and you'd be like, ah. Um, it's quite complicated because what you have is obviously when a temperature is high, but then you have if you've gradually acclimatized to that high temperature, mm. it's not as bad as if you kind of were like cruising spike. along. So there'll be like a net change. So it takes into account the average of the 30 days prior, okay. and then the yeah. average of the three days that you're looking at and looks at historical records back to, mm-hmm. like, the 1970s and kind of mm, works okay. out these crazy equations. So of, so you'd probably be looking at two cohorts then, those that experienced a heat wave yeah. and those that didn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And is that why you've chosen WA to do that specific study? Because we've got such a long kind of state where the climate's different from top to bottom at the same time. Um, yes, that is definitely one of the perks. Um, the other thing is that... Western Australia has a really old and well-established congenital abnormalities register, Mm. um, whereas the one for the whole of Australia has only um, got data back to 2016, Mm. whereas the the WA1 has data back to the 1980, Mm. um, which is really cool. So while we'll look at neonatal outcomes for the whole of Australia, for Western Australia we'll look at congenital abnormalities and then you can be like, hey, in temperate climates it's you know, more of an impact or less of an impact compared with arid or rural. Or, yeah. But, yeah, it's mm. been a bit of a learning curve going from 
medicines as an exposure to uh, extreme heat yeah. as an exposure. So yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, because they seem to be getting heat waves more and more often in Europe in particular. I know we, we always get hot weather here, but yeah. And it, the World mm. Contrast is the UK, isn't it? Yeah. So part of the appeal of WA was the multiple climate. Uh, mm. Like, um, I think we have all except for like Arctic or mm-hmm. can't think what the super friggin' cold people, category is. People in Albany would probably be I believe it's called the super friggin' cold category. Yeah. 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 So we have, um, so it'd be really interesting to see how, um, you know, heat exposure, particularly like if you're talking about heat exposure in a rural community in um, up mm-hmm. north, you know, where they don't have access to air conditionings, how's that going to compare to you know, living in Perth and maybe mm. some of the richest suburbs and, you know, you've got the air conditioning and the pool out the back and, yeah. you know, you're probably not going to notice such a big impact on, on neonatal health mm. outcomes mm. with good access to air conditioning. Mm. And so are those two data sets also linked to um, other ones so you can tell, like, comorbid conditions and all that kind of stuff or...? Um, we're probably going to keep it pretty simple because the linkage is quite complicated yep. in terms of um, the weather. Yep. <laughs> um, we're, just, we're starting pretty basic and using unlinked um, birth data and unlinked congenital abnormalities data just mm-hmm. kind of um, for this project um, and the time taken to kind of link large, large cohorts um, especially on a national context where you've got so many numbers and so many different data sets kind of that can be smushed in. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, because we've got, we've got about five years to get this project um, up and running and, and done. Yeah, and is it just people, Australian researchers, or are there, is it like an international team? No, or? it's been an international um, collaboration, mm. um, but pri- primarily centred out of UWA, okay. which is... Really exciting to see UWA win win some big mm. big money. Yeah, especially an international one like that yeah. from overseas. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the lead investigator is um, Caitlin Wyworrell, and it's uh, she's probably uh, like relatively early on in her career as well. So it's been a huge huge win for her, mm. um, and a really proud moment to see someone up and coming in this mm. area. Yeah, get a big win. Which school is she based at? Human Sciences. Okay. Yeah, very good. Mm. Yeah, excellent. Well, we're probably nearing the end of our chat and I feel like it's gone pretty quickly. So <laughs> it has, it? We'll have to get you on for another one. <laughs> it's just a ramblings with Aaron. <laughs> podcast in itself. <laughs> no, it's been great chatting and hearing a bit more about the stuff that um, goes on over my shoulder quite a lot <laughs> that, that I know nothing about. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, thanks very much for making the time. Oh, I loved being here. It's been great <laughs> chatting. And, uh, yeah, we'll hope to speak to you again soon. Awesome. About, to hear about some of this great work that's currently underway. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And that was our conversation with Dr Erin Kelty. I think we spent, like, the first... 25 minutes on horses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it was fascinating. It was so interesting. Like yeah. just the parallels as well. Was, oh, 
Well, Fascinating. What stuff. I find really interesting is how little research there is on animal health. Yeah, and, and I'm welfare. like surprised with horses as well because horses are such like a well, they've been kind of entwined in human history for such a long time as well. Yeah. Like they've been quite pivotal in mm. in how we like transport things and all that kind of stuff. Let alone like what you know as their pets now and things like that. So yeah, interesting mm. that there's not much research yeah. about them considering their impact. Yeah, and pleasing to hear that people. Like clever people like Aaron are yeah. trying to solve some of the horse problems, mm, you know, mm-hmm. and hopefully make things better for them. Yeah, but then like the pivot from like animal science and horse stuff to pharmaceuticals and pregnancy is just so an interesting line of work that she's yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, no, really good. Um, but yeah, it's a really enjoyable conversation and uh, lots to learn mm-hmm. from it. And definitely, yeah, so. Um, yeah, if you enjoyed that or any of the other episodes, please get in touch with us. Yeah. Courtney, it's been a while. Can you remember how people oh, get in touch with God. us? Oh, God, yes. There's many ways that you can come uh, uh, chat with us. You can email us at um, uh, a meaning of health at outlook.com. Uh, you can contact us on uh, Twitter or many of the social medias, Instagram, Facebook, either by looking up Meaning of Health. Um, Twitter is Health Means What. Uh, yeah, but I otherwise, think, if you look up Meaning of Health podcast, will yeah, probably come up. Yeah, um, I think I think Instagram might be Health Means What as well. Yes. Yeah, yes, so it's so, either one or the other. But I'm pretty sure if you do just Google Meaning of Health podcast, we come up now, which is exciting. Yeah, um, exciting. So there are, there are many ways you can come talk to us. And if you would like to chat or give us some comments or feedbacks, um, I also know that Erin's uh, looking for some specific fan mail. So if you really like her episode, let us know. Yeah. Uh, look in the, and we'll look pass in the, it on. Yeah, look in the show notes. That's right. Yep. Um, I'm sure we've probably tagged Erin in all of our Absolutely. social media. So, um, so yeah, please yeah. email us or message us on Instagram or Facebook or um, yeah. however you'd like to contact us. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks very much, Courtney. It's good Thank to you. see you after a, a little bit of a hiatus. Yeah, it's been good. Good to yeah. be back. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we'll be back in touch with you listeners soon as well. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.